Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, and perhaps you are, some of you may not be, you, you will know or you ought to know that Ruth is not an Israelite. Is she? She's not a Jew. She's not a Hebrew. She is a Moabitess. She is from uh, a land uh, to the east of the Sea of Galilee, to the east of the Dead Sea. She's uh, from a foreign people. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, traveled to uh, Moab because her uh, son, Elimelech, or her husband, rather, Elimelech, in a time of famine in Bethlehem and Judah more broadly, decided they needed to go somewhere else. They needed to, to move somewhere else in order to survive. Now, some of you yourselves have led a transitory life. Some of you, even fairly recently, have, have moved from places that were perhaps less than stellar places to live to the promised land of Texas. And so you understand a little bit about what that's like. But for Naomi and for her family, that move to Moab, that, that move was not like your move has, has been, those of you who have moved here. It was a time of, of bitterness for Naomi. And in fact, when she finally gets to go back to Judah, back to Bethlehem, back to her hometown, her homeland, she tells the people there not to call her Naomi, but to call her Mara, to call her bitter, because the Lord had dealt, she says, very bitterly with her in that place. She came back from Moab with one thing. She had lost her husband there in Moab. She'd lost both of her sons there in Moab. She came back with one thing, one possession, if you will. That's a crude way to put it. But she came back with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Ruth. Who ends up becoming a pivotal person in the history of God's people. A pivotal person for us. Because without Ruth... There'd be no David. And without David, there would be no forever king to come after David, to sit on the throne that the Lord promised he would establish forever. Now often in this life, most of the time, and those of you who have suffered, you, you, you get this, especially if you've lived for a while after going through a, a traumatic time or a time of deep sorrow, you know that you don't, most of the time, get to know what God's purpose, His greater, His ultimate purpose is for that, that suffering. You, you know, you trust that God has a purpose for it. You may just not ever find out in this life what it is. And that's the case for Naomi, bitter. That's the case for Ruth. They didn't know that a few generations after their deaths, King David, the greatest king that Israel had ever known, would, would come from their own line, would be their descendant, their, their great-great-grandson. And so we can know, generally speaking, that all things work out for good for those who are called according to Christ's purposes. But most of the time, we never know the specifics of why something has happened. And that why question, that's the burning question of mankind, isn't it? Why and how? And a lot of people substitute the why with the how because they don't want to know why. They come up with all kinds of, of answers to the question how. But that ultimate question is why. Why do we exist? Why do these things happen? Why did I suffer 
and endure pain in this way. Certainly Naomi and Ruth, like most of us when we suffer, they had no idea why they suffered. Naomi didn't know why her family's tribe, the tribe of Judah, was struck by famine so that they had to leave the country when they did. Naomi didn't know why she'd lost her husband, why she'd lost her two sons, and so had to bury them in that foreign land of Moab. Ruth didn't know why she had to suffer the loss of her husband, Malon, or why she had been unable to have children with him before she died, before he died, rather. And even though God brought them through this period of intense suffering during their lifetimes, they never knew the greater ultimate good that their suffering would bring about. Boaz and Ruth had no way of knowing that their great-grandson would become the king of Israel, the greatest king the nation would ever know, the king to, to whom the people of Israel today, the nation, the, the secular nation of Israel, they still look back to David for inspiration. But more than that, Naomi, Boaz, and Ruth had no idea that God had planned from eternity past for the long-awaited Messiah to come from their family line. We very likely don't know the specifics of why God puts us through times of suffering. We may never know, but God uses our sufferings for ultimate good. That we can know. That we can trust. I'd ask you to consider this as we make our way through the sermon this morning. God sovereignly oversees all things, even the suffering in our lives, in order to carry out his great plan of salvation. God sovereignly oversees all things, even the suffering in our lives, in order to carry out his great plan of salvation. The sermon has three parts. The first, the birth of a son. The second, a blessing to Naomi. And the third, a bigger picture. Again, the birth of a son, a blessing to Naomi, and a bigger picture. So let's look at this first section of the sermon, the birth of a son. In the preceding passage in the book of Ruth, Boaz redeems Ruth, meaning that he essentially saved her and Naomi from a life of poverty and of even more sorrow. If Ruth had not uh, gotten remarried, if she had remained unmarried in that culture at that time, she would have been essentially cast adrift. She would have had no future No ability to provide for herself. The best that she could have hoped for was being able to do even less than what she did in Moab, which was to glean from the fields. But she would have gotten no special treatment, no special favor from uh, the owner of uh, of the field, uh, from Boaz. Boaz was her kinsman redeemer, meaning that he brought brought back her land on behalf of her. That land that had been lost during the terrible famine that Judah went through and that drove many to foreign lands to try and survive there. And so it was that Boaz bought the land that had belonged to Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and and along with that land came a great bonus for Boaz, Ruth. It took the first four and a half chapters to cover a span of just a few months, but verse 13 covers a span of at least nine months in just 15 Hebrew words. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. That's it. Very brief synopsis of everything that happened. Now, the legal proceedings in the gate to Bethlehem have been completed. You remember that that Boaz, he speaks to a nearer kinsman redeemer than he is to Naomi. 
He initially uh, he says to him, there's land, do you want to redeem that land? Do you want to purchase it? And the man says, yes, I'd love to do that. And then he says, well, if you buy the land, then along with the land comes Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law. And the man decides that that is something he can't do. If he purchases the land and receives Ruth as a, as a wife, then he, uh, he puts in jeopardy his, the inheritance that he will give to his own children. And so he declines, and Boaz accepts, and they strike a deal. They exchange shoes, which is the way that deals were struck in that day. And Boaz redeems the land, and Boaz redeems Ruth as his wife. Well, the shortness of the verse indicates that they conceived a child right away, right after they were married. But there's also an important theological point that's made in this verse. Boaz and Ruth conceived the child in the normal way. There was nothing supernatural about it, but it was still God who gave the conception. Now think about that for a moment. That has some implications for us in the way that we understand life. Even from its very beginning, from the moment of conception. There wasn't anything supernatural or miraculous about the conception of, of the child who would become known uh, and named uh, Obed. And still the Lord gave the conception. Now, when Ruth was pregnant, there was absolutely no way at that time to know before the baby was born whether that baby would be a boy or a girl. And in that ancient society, just like in many societies all over the world today, the parents hoped for a son. Women in that society, women in many societies today, were at a distinct disadvantage. And so Naomi and Ruth needed the child to be a son so that the family name of their dead husbands could live on that their land could be kept in the family line. And as it turned out, God did indeed give them a son. The family name would live on in the town of Bethlehem and in the tribe of Judah. It would live on in a big way. And that brings us to the second part of the sermon, a blessing to Naomi. The scene changes in verse 14. Now we're with Naomi, who has been visited by the women of the town. And these women say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, And may his name be renowned in Israel. The women hit on the same theological point that the author made in verse 13. It is God who is working. He gave conception to Ruth as he gives Naomi a redeemer. Now a number of you here are grandparents. Some of you are even great-grandparents. You understand better than I what I'm about to say. The birth of a grandchild is an enormous blessing to grandparents. Grandparents are just as excited as as the parents of the child, it seems like. More so because they can always hand the baby back when they need to, when a diaper, say, needs to be changed. But beyond having the blessing of being a grandmother, Naomi has a new, nearer relative, a new kinsman redeemer. Her grandson is going to make sure that the name, the family name, is perpetuated. And so just as God has given Ruth rest in the, in the house of her husband, as Naomi prayed for, in chapter, for her in chapter 1, verse 9, God now provides an heir to the house of Elimelech. All the land of Naomi's that Boaz redeemed will go to her grandson. And in the second half of verse 14, the women pray that Naomi's grandson's name will be renowned in Israel. And we read the name Obed in the genealogy at the end of the book, which shows that her prayer was answered. Several years ago, we were buying a car, a vehicle, and the salesman that we had, his name was Obed. I'd never met an Obed in real life. 
And I asked him, do you know where your name comes from? Do you, do you know the origins of your name? And he was not familiar with it. I got to tell him the story of, of Ruth. I don't know how much he appreciated it, but he at least had a sense of the history of his name. It's a very unusual name. We need more ch- sons named Obed, okay, people? It's a great name. His name was recorded in the pages of Scripture. But it was Naomi's later son, her great-great-grandson to be exact, King David, whose name would truly be renowned throughout all Israel. And it's only because of David that we know Obed's name at all. But that prayer that those women prayed for Naomi, the prayer that the grandson would become renowned, it's ultimately through the coming of David's greater son, that the name Obed has particular relevance and meaning for us. In verse 15, they speak near prophetically about the grandson of Naomi. They say to to her, He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Now those are large expectations for a little baby, but the women mean that Naomi and Ruth will have, have the security of someone to care for them when they're old. The Lord has taken care of them by giving them a child who will see them through to the end of their lives. Now, the anxieties associated with growing old are no small thing. And and those anxieties seem to increase with the the greater life expectancy that that happens in society. The, The older and older that people, as a group, live, it seems like the greater and greater those anxieties become. Think of the social structures that that have been set up in our country to take care of the elderly. Billions and billions of dollars are spent every year to care for people in their old age. But the concerns associated with growing old are the same at any time. But the way that people today try to stay young at all costs makes me think that we're more worried about getting old now than they were in Ruth's and Naomi's days, despite all of these social structures that we have in place. But the remedy for anxieties at either time, at any time, is the same. Trust in the Lord. He will provide. In the second half of verse 15, the women say something that's astonishing. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Now we talked a few minutes ago about how in the ancient world, in ancient Israel, it was a society that heavily favored the birth of sons. And the women's words in verse 14 and the first half of verse 15 are right in line with that way of thinking. That that way of thinking still persists to this day. There are simply some dads who are not happy unless they've got a son. They've got to have a son. But when they say, these women say that Ruth is more to Naomi than seven sons, that's astonishing. They're, They're sort of overturning those tables in a sense. Ruth, who was only her daughter-in-law, who was a Moabitess, a foreigner, a stranger, who was unable to provide an heir with her first husband, Naomi's son. She is more to Naomi than seven sons. Now the book of Ruth testifies to her great love for Naomi. And so it would be hard for anyone to disagree with the women here. They were aware of Ruth's steadfast love to Naomi. Ruth's reputation had had easily spread through the small town of Bethlehem. In fact, when she first meets Boaz, he comments on that. I've heard all about you. I've heard what you did for your mother-in-law. 
I heard of your love for her. And now Ruth has given birth to Naomi's grandson. Verse 16 says that Naomi took the child, she laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the Hebrew word for nurse has a wide range of meaning, similar to our English word. There's no reason to imply that that Naomi became a wet nurse to Obed. In this context, given Naomi's age and the fact that she couldn't, had, not just been, uh, had not just given birth, it means that she cared for him as a nurse would care for him. She looked after him. She loved him the way that grandmothers do. Naomi's heart was filled with joy as she held her grandson in her arms, just like countless grandmothers before and after her. That brings us to the third and the final point of the sermon, a bigger picture. Verse 17 has the distinction of being the only instance recorded in the Old Testament where the parents don't name their child. The women of Bethlehem give this baby his name. Now this seems unusual, but in Luke chapter 1 verses 58 and 59, we have an indication there that Elizabeth's neighbors and their relatives were going to name her son before she intervened and named him John, as commanded by the angel of the Lord earlier in the chapter. The women in our passage say, a son has been born to Naomi. Not Ruth, but Naomi. Now this seems unusual too, but in Hebrew there is no word for grandson or granddaughter. It's all just kind of collapsed. The author of the book of Ruth saves a surprise at the end of verse 17 for those who haven't read it. The end of verse 17 says they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now the first time you read this book, you might have thought, That it was just an inspirational story. Wow, what a great story. The the book of Ruth, it resonates. About a family who's gone through a tough time, but God has brought them through it. But then you get to verse 17, and you realize that all of the events in this book took place because God was setting the stage for the birth of David. It was God's plan from eternity past for Boaz to be the father of Obed, and Obed to be the father of Jesse, and Jesse to be the father of David. If there had been no famine, Elimelech and Naomi and their sons would never have gone to Moab. They would never have met Ruth. She would never have married Boaz. There wouldn't have been a King David. And so verse 17 shows that all of the suffering that Naomi and Ruth endured was for the greater purpose of producing King David a few generations down the line. In retrospect, it makes all the pain they endured at least a little more worth it, if not completely worth it. And verses 18 to 22 22 shows that it it stretches even further back. Boaz's and Obed's genealogy is now the genealogy of David. Most of the time when we get to a genealogy in our reading of Scripture, we skim over it. Be honest. What do you do when you encounter a long genealogy in Scripture? You probably zip on through. The, 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 The names are difficult to pronounce, even for your pastor. You go on through it. Maybe you skim the names and say, oh, I recognize that one. But... We don't have a vested interest in those names the way that, that people, other people do. Genealogies most of the time are interesting only to the family of the genealogy. I've got a large book at home. It's called Descending Jacob's Ladder. It's about the descendants of Johann Jacob Troutman. And for some reason, when I offer uh, the book to guests to read through it, they don't really have much of an interest in reading it. I find it fascinating. 
But genealogies were very important in ancient Israel. In a practical sense, it was important to know your genealogy so that you would be aware of the tribe you were in and the specific branch of that tribe and the specific clan of that branch. If you were an Israelite, you would memorize your family tree all the way back to Jacob. Your inheritance depended on your tribe because the land was allotted, it was divided and allotted by tribe. But there's a theological importance to the genealogies in the Bible as well. They point to the big picture. They testify as to what God is doing in the salvation of his people. There's a line in this genealogy from Perez to David. It is a historical but also a theological timeline. It reminds God's people that God has been at work for generations to bring about his purposes. And while genealogies are a list of people from the past, they present a trajectory of what God is going to do in the future. They served as a reminder to God's people that because he was faithful to their family down through history, he will continue to be faithful tomorrow and the next day. We need to have a note about genealogies. Most, if not all, genealogies in the Old Testament, they leave out some names. This genealogy is no different. The important names would be retained, but often the less important ones would be dropped out. Some were blotted out because of their wickedness, as Psalm chapter 9, verse 5 indicates. Also, in biblical genealogies, the seventh and the tenth positions and their multiples were given priority. So some names might be dropped out so that an important name would be in the seventh position or the tenth position of the genealogy. If you ever have time, maybe you have time this afternoon as you're waiting in line to get food, go into classroom B. Look on the wall at the genealogy that begins with Adam, traces its way down to David, and ends with the birth of Jesus Christ. Check it out. It's fascinating. It's a great picture of God's faithfulness to his people. Beginning all the way back with Adam and Eve. In this genealogy, who's in the seventh position? Boaz. Who's in the tenth position? David. And while this genealogy points to David, because it traces itself so far back in the past, all the way back to Perez, it shows that there's a trajectory going into the future. It points beyond David. Anyone with even a cursory knowledge of David knows that he's far from perfect. The genealogy can't end with David. He was Israel's greatest king, but he was not Israel's forever king. We've seen this again and again during our time in 1 and 2 Samuel and in 1 Kings. This genealogy points in the direction of someone well beyond David. And when taken with the rest of the Old Testament, it's clear that someone greater than David will come. Someone greater than David has to come in order for God's promises to be fulfilled. God is explicit about this when he says to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. No one, no one, no son of David until the coming of Jesus Christ fulfilled that promise. The remainder of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament clearly point to Jesus being the fulfillment of this prophecy. Ultimately, it's Jesus who will be Naomi's redeemer, Ruth's redeemer. 
It is Jesus whose name will be renowned throughout Israel. It is Jesus who is the restorer of life and a nourisher in our old age. Only Jesus can do these things because only Jesus can save us from our sins as we read from Matthew chapter 1. It is Jesus for whom Israel longed to come. And it is Jesus whom we long to come again. He alone can give us security. He alone can give us rest. David was the greatest king Israel ever knew. But Jesus is the greatest king ever whom Israel refused to know. But who we, by God's grace, have been brought to know. As many have said before me, there's a scarlet thread that runs through the tapestry of the Old Testament. It runs along the, all of the genealogies of the Old Testament's pages. They all ultimately point to Him. That scarlet thread, it runs straight to Jesus. And it was dyed with His own blood, which was shed for sinners just like you and me. All we need to do is to repent of our sins and believe in the one to whom all the scriptures point. The Lord Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let us pray.